0: Rebuild your life from a place of embodied listening and quiet knowing. To learn more and register for this live stream, go to eomega.org/thrive.
1: The protests since the death of George Floyd are highlighting the same issues that we see in the eating disorder world, which is that you know we live in a society where racism is the way it is. And where, if you are a person of color, you may not have the ability to get treatment.
2: Hi there. Welcome to Students of Mind, the mental health podcast made by curious minds for curious minds. On this podcast, we, the hosts, are just like you, eager to learn more about the mind. Here, we learn with you and provide you with clear, concise information backed up by real experts about all things mental health. My name is Jade. And today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Carolyn Ross to talk about eating disorders, eating disorder treatment, how eating disorders are experienced in communities of color, and what it's like to be a Black woman and an eating disorder professional. Today's guest is Dr. Carolyn Ross. Dr. Ross is an expert and pioneer in the use of integrative medicine for the treatment of eating disorders and addiction. She is the CEO of the Anchor Program, a 12-week online program for people struggling with binge eating, food addiction, and emotional eating. Dr. Ross is the author of three books, and she shares her knowledge and expertise with treatment centers around the country to help them develop effective eating disorder programs. Dr. Ross is also a chair member of the African American Eating Disorder Professionals Committee. Welcome,
1: Dr. Ross,
2: and thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So I know I said a little bit about you and the work that you do, but could you tell us more in a little more depth about you and the work you do and how you got to where you are today?
1: Sure. Um, Well, you know, I'm a medical doctor. I completed medical school at the University of Michigan and um, initially just wanted to work in primary care, you know, and I had uh, several offices that I ran. I was always in private practice, but I also always had an interest in working with women so as part of my interest in working with women, I ended up doing a lot of work on eating disorders. And that's how I kind of first got involved in working with eating disorders. So uh, for quite some time, I've either been a medical director of eating disorder treatment centers or a consultant with treatment centers, and then have had, you know, worked with people in my, in my practice who have uh, eating disorders as well.
2: Okay. Um, So I think first, what I want to ask is um, like, if you were talking to someone who has no knowledge of eating disorders whatsoever, how would you describe what an eating disorder is and the role that they play?
1: So somebody who came from another planet and had never. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think the best. Explanation that I can come up with is that eating disorders, um, while they involve food and body image, it's really a, 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 these disorders all function uh, from people's inability to manage their emotions, particularly emotions around certain topics and uh, certain experiences, I should say, not topics. So people with eating disorders tend to use food in a way to help them manage emotions, especially uh, people who have had uh, traumatic experiences, particularly in childhood, uh, because those traumatic experiences, you know, change things in a person's brain and make it difficult for them to manage their emotions, and often food or behaviors are used as a way to. know to stay in control and to manage those emotions
2: um so right now um what are
1: like the known types of eating disorders
2: and which of those are the most common
1: yeah well i think most people know about anorexia and bulimia and uh 10 years ago binge eating disorder was put in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So now it's considered a, a true eating disorder. And then there are some ancillary ones, like what uh, one, one we call um, other specified feeding and eating disorders, which are kind of for people who don't fit the specific criteria for anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder, they might be put in that category. And then there's another category that's mostly not to do with body image. The people in, it's uh, the initials are ARFID. um, Oops, now I'm going to forget what it is. Uh, (laughs) That's embarrassing. (laughs) Um, But the ARFID category are often people who have uh, autism, and their issue is not so much you know, body image, it's more about the texture of food, and, you know, how, 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 it's avoidant reactive food intake disorder. I hope I can be forgiven for forgetting that long title. Anyway, I think most people feel like, because we know, they've heard so much about anorexia and bulimia, they probably think, oh, those are the most common ones. But actually, binge eating disorder is more common than anorexia and bulimia combined. So, And also the other difference is that binge eating disorder has more men in it than do the other eating disorders. So about 40% of people with binge eating disorder are men, whereas it's a much lower percentage for anorexia and bulimia.
2: Okay, that's... That's interesting to me. I didn't know that it, binge eating disorder was more prevalent than bulimia and
1: anorexia combined. Yeah, I, I don't think most people realize that because yeah. years and years, the only eating disorders we even talked about were anorexia and bulimia. And everything else was considered what we called eating disorder, not otherwise specified or ednos So everything else was just piled together under EDNOS and nobody really talked much about it. And uh, then about 10 years ago, there was a lot of research and kind of a push to recognize binge eating disorder as a true part of the eating disorder spectrum. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. And I think even in my like journey um, with my eating disorder, Mm -hmm. I started like my recovery Four years ago. And even then, I rarely heard anything mentioned about binge eating disorder. So I think even in like the short four years that I've been in recovery, I've seen an improvement in how much people are talking about it and like spreading awareness about it.
1: Yeah, and there still aren't a lot of treatment centers even for binge eating disorder. So yeah, I think there's There's certainly a lag, just as there's a huge lag in the recognition of eating disorders in people of color, black, indigenous, you know, other people of color. And, you know, I think studies have shown that if you present a therapist with the exact same uh, symptoms that a patient coming in has, but you tell the therapist that one is white, one is Hispanic, and one is black, the black person will only be diagnosed with an eating disorder about 14% of the time, whereas white and Hispanic with the exact same symptoms will be diagnosed over 70% of the time. Wow. So there's a huge bias about, you know, whether black people can even have an eating disorder, which is crazy because the studies show that, you know, black Hispanics have the same percentage of eating disorders that do whites. Uh, There's not as much research in Native Americans and Alaskan Natives, but uh, they also suffer uh, for approximately the same amount from eating disorders.
2: Wow. Um, So we're definitely going to come back to um, race and how that plays a part in eating disorders. Uh, Because I want to talk about symptoms and behaviors. Um, because I don't know if people can really identify what it looks like when someone is engaging in an eating disorder behavior. So I know that uh, it can look different depending on the person, but can you talk about, you know, anorexia bulimia and binge eating and what their
1: typical behaviors are? Well, we have, we have specific criteria for each one. And um, you know, I can go through those, and I think that's how we measure uh, whether or not someone has that diagnosis. So, for anorexia, it's inability to maintain a healthy weight. Um, you know, they used to say loss of menstrual cycle, but surprisingly, nowadays a lot of women continue to have their uh, periods, and also men don't have periods, so <laughs> they finally took that. They finally took that out. Um, But that inability to maintain weight and then a distortion of body image so that when a person with anorexia looks in the mirror, they see someone who's much larger than everybody else sees. Um, So I think for all of the eating disorders, there's a common underlying um, thread of your self-evaluation being very dependent on your size, your weight, etc., So you can put that across the board for anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. And I think there's been, I think it's more rational to call them um, behavioral addictions rather than necessarily an eating problem. But the eating behaviors associated with anorexia are mainly to do with restriction. So not eating enough food, uh, keeping yourself from eating Uh, adequate amounts of food for fear of gaining weight. And then for bulimia, the same self-evaluation related to weight and shape, but the main behavior is uh, the binge. And a binge is eating a large amount of food in a short uh, short period of time, usually two hours. And then with bulimia, it's followed by some way of purging. And so that could be self-induced vomiting. It could be the use of diuretics or laxatives or even compulsive exercise. So um, that's those are the first two, and then binge eating disorder is characterized by the binge. Again, it's that eating that large quantity of food, and there is no compensatory purge, and there's a lot of emotional distress centered around the binge. Um, you know, just kind of. Feeling, um, you know, eating in isolation for fear of being embarrassed about how much they're eating, feeling a lot of guilt and shame about how much they're eating and so on. I want to
2: ask, you know, of course, I know that eating disorders aren't all about the food, but I feel like it's hard for some people to grasp. You know, it's called an eating disorder. So why can't we just fix this person's eating and then they'll be cured? <laughs> so, it's so, you,
1: so simple, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's one of the things that people who have eating disorders hate the most because parents or loved ones will say, well, just eat if you're an anorexic. Or if you have binge eating, just stop eating and get more exercise. Then you'll be fine. You know, right? But it's not really that way. So I think the, the names are problematic and Um, We're really coming to only now, I think, starting to come to an understanding that even weight isn't the biggest factor. Because before, we've always said, oh, if you're underweight, then you must have anorexia. If you're normal weight or a little overweight, you must have bulimia. If you're living in a larger body, you must have, um, you know, bingeing disorder. And now we're seeing that isn't even 100% true. So, you know, I think we need to go deeper and look more at the underlying causes. And when you look at trauma as an underlying cause, it's pretty significant that um, a high majority of people seeking treatment for an eating disorder have a history of some kind of childhood adversity. So when I say trauma, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it must be sexual abuse or something, you know, Um, even worse. But it can be things like, you know, coming from a family where um, a parent has a, you know, mental illness, or the parent has a substance use problem, alcohol or drugs, or maybe someone in your family. uh, Also, there's the genetics, but also in terms of trauma, someone in your family who, um, you know, may be incarcerated, or there's just a a long list of other things, household dysfunction, emotional abuse, neglect, which is something people really don't talk about, but children who, whose needs have never been met either because their family is so dysfunctional or you know maybe their personality disorders in the parents, but where the child just feels alone and doesn't have their needs met is also a sign of adversity. So we're just really seeing that link between childhood adversity and eating disorders, as well as addictions, uh, is becoming even more important.
2: Okay. Um, So with any mental illness, there's always some misconceptions attached. So what are the most common misconceptions about eating disorders that you come across in your work?
1: Uh, that it has to do with wanting to look good. you know that people with anorexia, they're just concerned about how they're going to look in a bathing suit. And it certainly may seem like that on the surface because there's such a focus on body image and there's such a distortion in body image um, particularly in, in anorexia. Um, that but that's a misconception it's it's not really true. The misconception that you know, black people don't have eating disorders, the misconception that um, even the misconception that eating disorders are, um, you know, all about control. I mean, for a long time, we used to say that people with anorexia, the reason that they restricted was because they had to control things. I think that's, you know, to a degree that that there is some truth to that, but that's not the entire truth. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. I think, I think there are a lot of misconceptions. Oh, that men don't get eating disorders. How about that? Yeah. So
2: I all, I'm always curious about like where these misconceptions come from and like what it is about eating disorders that like cause people to make all of these assumptions.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's um, just like anything else. It's ignorance and um stigma you know there's a lot of uh i mean i have patients who are naturally underweight they just haven't grown into their bodies and even they are stigmatized for being too thin so i think there's just in society if you're different in any way whether it be the color of your skin or the size of your body or you know anything else that's different about you then people people are going to judge
2: So you talked a little bit about society and how, you know, there's so many images of what the perfect body is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that in my kind of exploration of eating disorders, I find it troubling how some of these like dieting trends are so blatantly like similar to eating disorder behaviors
1: (laughs) (laughs) and how like that's an understatement
2: (laughs) yeah like nothing's being said about it diets are the number one cause of eating
1: disorders really or the number one trigger at least I mean you have to have for many people they may have an underlying uh predisposition to eating disorders like what like I said genetics um or trauma etc but diets are often the number one trigger where somebody who is vulnerable will go on a diet with the, You know, I, I remember a kid who, a male patient of mine who started dieting in middle school with a bunch of friends. They just all went on a diet together and his friends got bored with dieting and he just kept going and he couldn't stop himself. And that's how it all started. I don't know if, if he hadn't gone on that first diet, if that would have been the case. So diets are dangerous. I It's very upsetting to me, and I don't want to get too much on my soapbox, but um, it's upsetting to me that diets are still being promoted, not just in society, because we, we understand society is all about making money. You know, the diet industry is a $60 billion industry that is off the backs of primarily women. And, and even young women like teenagers and children are put on diets. And so, you know, people are making money off of this notion that you have to look a certain way in order to be acceptable. And, and that's, it's just wrong. And even more wrong is the fact that, you know, medical professionals who honestly know nothing about nutrition, there's, you know, at least when I went to medical school, there wasn't one nutrition class that we ever had to take. And I don't think it's changed much. And yet doctors feel very comfortable, cavalierly recommending diets, which could then lead to eating disorders in their patients. I did get on my soapbox a little there, so I'll stop.
2: <laughs> no, that that was like my next question. Like I, um, I'm wondering, because... I've had experiences where doctors were just completely insensitive to the fact that I'm an eating disorder patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard that across the board from like friends that have eating disorders, stories I've read online. Has the kind of like disconnect between medical doctors and eating disorder
1: patients has it gotten better over time? No, I mean, I am a doctor and I've had doctors tell me that I should go on this diet or that diet or whatever, you know, to lower my cholesterol or to whatever they think, you know, lose weight, et cetera. And honestly, you know, (laughs) I get very angry about that because I really think, you know, if we had, um, you know, if we had a pill that would enable people to um, overcome their biology and lose weight, uh, I don't even think that's a good thing, but we don't have a treatment for any of this. We don't really have even, you know, really good treatments for eating disorders. It's, you know, many people go into treatment and then they relapse again and again and again. Same for addictions. So there is no treatment and recommending diets just makes everything that much worse everything you know it's yeah it's very useful to recommend to people that they be active and you know find happiness in their lives that they meditate to deal with stress those are really good recommendations but putting all your focus on the number on the scale is a really bad recommendation they they aren't trained doctors aren't trained on, in eating disorders either they receive very very little training in eating disorders so you know, for a doctor to pretend that they are knowledgeable about that is, you know, it's a farce. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. And then, like, as someone who has an eating disorder, it's just so confusing when I'm told by this, you know, doctor, therapist, psychiatrist on my eating disorder team that it's okay for me to be doing this meal plan and eating this so much, but I go to my doctor and I see like even just like posters on the wall of like this is what you're supposed to eat this is what your plate is supposed to look like it's it's so confusing and like it just makes it harder to accept that you even have an eating disorder Mm -hmm. um, or that eating disorders are even real
1: yeah well I mean I think uh, there's an author recently who said uh america has an eating disorder and i think that's true because we're obsessed with appearance you know and that social media has just made that even worse Um, however if you have an eating disorder i would never take advice from someone who's not a specialist in treating eating disorders and I think the whole notion of what you should eat, how much you should eat, the plate plan, the not plate, it's confusing for everyone. You know, I've been in medicine for decades. And during that time, we were told, fat is bad for you. And then we were told, oh, no, fat is good for you. You need fat because, you know, I mean, you have to have hormones. So, duh, you have to have fat to have hormones. So people going on low-fat diets definitely don't have enough hormones to have periods and so on. So that got next. And then it was low carb, oh, carbs are so bad for you, you have got to stop eating carbs. Oh, uh, Then we forget about all the nutrients that are in true carbs. I'm not talking about, you know, processed food, I'm talking about fruits and vegetables have nutrients that our body needs. And so then it was, okay, well, maybe we could eat some carbs. And now it's all about sugar, can't eat sugar, can't eat sugar. I mean, if you think about that, it doesn't make any sense. Because if you're listening to all of that and you look back at the history of that, you can see that it's it's really all a money-making game. And even if you discount that, maybe some people really, you know, had done research and really wanted to do something good. They didn't know what they were doing because then they had to retract everything. So we cannot listen to popular media. We cannot listen to, you know, what's on TV about what to eat. We cannot, we cannot go down those roads. And I think it's important for everyone, but m- even more important for people with eating disorders to try to limit their exposure to those kinds of things.
2: Um, So for people who um, are able to access treatment and resources for their eating disorder, um, what types of treatments are out there and what's being used for people looking for help?
1: Yeah, well, I think the standard treatment has been the 30 to 45 to 60 day inpatient or residential program, which is fine. I think that's a good treatment for people who need stabilization. Maybe they're not medically stable, or they are unable to stop their behaviors on their own in the outpatient setting. Um, And then after that, there's what we call um, partial hospitalization, where you may be at a treatment facility for anywhere from 6 to 12 hours a day, and then you go home at night. And then below that is intensive outpatient treatment. And that can be spending anywhere from three to six hours a day at a facility, and then the rest of the time you're on your own. So, you know, there's there's definitely benefit to all of those, but we have to really recognize that eating disorders are chronic conditions. They're not going to be cured in a 30-day program or even a, you know, 60-day program. So it's really important that people have options to work with um Experts in the field, once they've completed that, the treatment program, and that's where I think we don't have enough uh, help for eating disorder patients. It's one of the reasons why I developed an online program for binge eating disorder, because having worked in many treatment centers and seeing how people they do so well and they're so, you know they're feeling so good they're on top of the world when they leave the program, and then next thing you know. They've relapsed and, you know, they're in that spiral. And then they, you know, some patients who have had like seven, gone to 17 or more treatment uh, facilities. And that just, first of all, is a lot of money that most people can't afford. Second of all, you know, there's something wrong with that if, you know, we can't provide care that helps keep people from relapsing. So in my online program, you know, I take people from all over the world, actually, and we have a program that's an, an intensive program for a few months and then a six-month program after that that helps them to stay, you know, uh, on on track. And so that's what I do with people with binge eating and compulsive reading, emotional eating, food addiction. And I think we need more of that Where because you may live in a city, but a lot of people go to a treatment program, then they go home to some tiny town in Iowa or Michigan where there are no doctors who know anything about eating disorders. So we need more access to specialists for treatment.
2: Okay. So, um, in these programs, cause I know you said, uh, like, a inpatient, PHP, IOP, track. Mm -hmm. Um, Within those programs, what types of therapies are being used um, to help with the recovery process?
1: I think the most common still is um, cognitive behavior therapy, and there's also a lot of dialectical behavior therapy or uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is used to help people become better at emotional regulation. So those tend to be the most common. Some programs have family therapy, um, you know, family systems therapy. Those are all, also, and some programs also use different trauma therapies, whether that be EMDR or somatic experiencing or one of the other trauma therapies.
2: Um. So, in your opinion, what is the most effective, which I know is kind of a relative question because therapy is different for everyone, but. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, you know, I really believe that um, while not everybody who's had childhood adversity or trauma in their lives will develop an eating disorder or an addiction, most of the people that I've worked with have had a history of trauma. So most of the patients I've worked with with eating disorders have a history of some kind of adversity in their lives. And so I really believe that, you know, trauma therapy is super important. And I think until recently, uh, you know, I think most treatment centers did not really focus on that. They were more focused on weight restoration for the anorexic and stopping behaviors for the bulimic and so on. But if you don't deal with the underlying causes of the eating disorders, people do keep cycling back. They keep, you know, they go home and then those memories or whatever happened to them or going back into a dysfunctional family without knowing how to manage that uh, causes relapse.
2: Yeah. um, It's interesting how um, when you're talking about trauma and eating disorders because, I've mostly heard eating disorders being a way to cope with like anxiety and depression. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: I remember being in treatment and there weren't like any trauma based groups, Mm -hmm. except for one that was only for like a select group of people. So it was like they would go off during the day somewhere and have their own trauma therapy session.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, for the most part, is how it still is, and it it really shouldn't be that way. I think in the treatment world, mainly they were identifying trauma as what we used to call the big T. So big T is obviously stuff like sexual abuse, or you know, I don't know, just really the worst of the worst. But now, now with the adverse childhood experiences study that the Centers for Disease Control has has been running. Um, they're pretty clear that childhood adversity from neglect to all sorts of abuse, even emotional abuse, physical abuse, uh, emotional and physical neglect, as well as those household d- dysfunctions like uh, domestic violence in the home, substance use in the home, mental illness in the home, etc., cetera, all of those markedly increase a person's risk. developing, um, you know, some kind of eating issue.
2: Okay, so now I want to shift our conversation to talk a little more about race and how people of color have a little bit of a different experience with their eating disorders. Um, So the first thing I want to ask is, um, I know that you are a member of the African American Eating Disorders Professional Committee, um, and I want to ask what do you think the importance of having this committee is?
1: Yeah, well, this is a committee of IADEP, which is the International Eating Disorders Professionals Organization, and it's the premier organization, you know, mainly for therapists and people who work in the eating disorder field, dieticians, you know, et cetera. And, you know, for many, many, many years within that organization, there was no recognition that number one, people of color get eating disorders, and number two, that um, there may be differences in how we need to address address those. So I think I wasn't the founder of the committee. I'm, I'm the uh, co-chair right now, <clears throat> but two of my colleagues, Mizella Fuller from Duke University and uh, Charlene Small from University of Richmond, founded the committee. And I think certainly since I've been the co-chair with with, uh, another woman who uh, is from Renfrew, uh, Polly Gayfield Edwards. We've really been focused on education and getting the word out that Black people do get eating disorders and that we need to really pay attention to that. And we're missing, you know, a whole lot of people who need help. And so I think the importance of the committee is raising both the educational level and also awareness level of the need for, um, recognition of eating disorders in people of color.
2: So now I want to ask, how is the experience of having an eating disorder different for people of
1: color? I think there are a lot of similarities. Um, you know, the diagnosis, the criteria are the same and so on, but, um, I, I do feel there are cultural differences, and um, certainly in the AAEDP committee, that's one of the things we are trying to educate people on is how to become culturally competent so you're not, you know, making a person's uh, life and eating disorder worse by microaggressions, for example, or misidentifying their cultural identity or making assumptions about their culture based on, you know, all the things that people do, the color of their skin or, you know, where they live in the country, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's, you know, all of the protests since the death of George Floyd are highlighting the same issues that we see in the eating disorder world, which is that, you know, we live in a society where Racism is the, it's the, it's the way it is and where, um, you know, people of color do not have the same opportunities. So, for example, if you are a person of color, you, you may not have the ability to get treatment financially. So that's one thing. And then if you go in and get treatment, you may be the only person of color in your, you know, in your treatment group. And there may be no therapists, doctors or dietitians who work with you. So, um, I mean, we joke about in my friend, Charlene Small, she she has this joke about, well, you may be given uh, a challenge to eat a piece of pie and you're given, you know, uh, an orange, a pie with an orange substance in it. And for many black women, that might be, they think it's going to be sweet potato pie, but then they put it in their mouth and and it's pumpkin pie. Now, not all, that doesn't apply to everyone because, you know, many black people are very acculturated now into the dominant society. And so may have those kinds of things may not be the case, but there are things like, you know, how you need to take care of your hair, how much focus is put on You know your hair, and you know people coming up and wanting to touch it, and all that kind of stuff. So it's just not finding yourself seen in the same way as we would hope, uh, or in the same way that a white girl with an eating disorder is seen in treatment.
2: So you're talking about, you know, how that experience is in treatment. I know for me a lot of, I guess, the differences I've noticed between my eating disorder experience compared to my white friend's eating disorder experience is how I was treated in my home when I was like engaging in behavior. So I'm wondering, like in your uh, patients of color, is is that something that shows up as well?
1: Well, I I do think that in the Black community, first of all, there's a bias against getting help for any mental health or behavioral health problem. And so mm-hmm. that can be a real problem in for someone who has an eating disorder, being able to get the help that they need. Is that what happened for you? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I think also just not understanding the kind of weight of what I was experiencing and kind of blowing it off as... Oh, she just doesn't it's want to just eat
1: a stage. It's just a stage or
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. And that I think that happens a lot. Or I went through something like that and I grew out of it. So you will too. So again, I think there's a lack of education and there is just a strong bias that comes from hundreds of years of experience of black people having, you know, negative experiences with the healthcare profession.
2: Yeah. Um, so you've talked about this a little bit, but I just want to touch on like, what are some of the specific ways that racism shows up in
1: the eating disorder world? That's a really good question. I, what I've uh, experienced is racism shows up in a lot of ways from a professional standpoint, it is in the fact that, um, clinicians of color are not being hired to work in treatment centers and until the George Floyd protest honestly nobody seemed to care about that it's kind of like what, why are we even talking about this you know yeah so and and they can explain they would explain it by saying oh well we don't have people of color but it's interesting that just as white clinicians have been for generations treating people of color. Black clinicians, you know, I'm a black doctor, I treat white people, so, but they don't see that in the eating disorder world that, you know, having a black clinician is not just for black patients, it brings diversity throughout the center. So that's one way that racism shows up. Um, the lack of recognition and, and diagnosis of, uh, of people of color with eating disorders is another way. Uh, The lack of availability of treatment, um, you know, helping people get in, offering scholarships if needed, um, all of those kinds of things, I think. And then there's, I think, the individual one-on-one connections where there's a lot of microaggressions that happen. There's implicit bias that happens. Oh, you know, that whole thing about, well, black girls don't, Care if they're bigger because that's part of their culture. So, you know, and that's not true for every Black woman, you know. So I think there's a ton of ways that it shows up.
2: Can you talk a little more about uh, just being a Black woman in the field that you're in and um, just how that experience has been for you and how you decided to get into this field that's proven to <laughs> kind of be against you?
1: Yeah, that's sort of a loaded question right now because I, well, personally, been going through kind of a big shift in my own, like internal world, that started with when I gave a TED talk. I don't know if you saw my TEDx talk.
2: I I watched it last
1: night. Yeah, well, you know, I was very lucky to have the opportunity to do a TEDx talk, and my talk was on intergenerational and historical trauma. So. I gave my talk in January, and then I've been speaking a lot on the same topic since then. One of the talks that I gave to clinicians online was the day after George Floyd was killed. And I started to see in doing the TED Talk, um, just a little background on me that, you know, I grew up in the South, in the Jim Crow South, when I was born and through most of my childhood, up until high school, I went to all segregated schools. And, you know, we had the back of the bus thing. We had the separate water fountains The you can't sit in the movie theater unless you sit in the balcony. Uh, my grandfather was a doctor. He wasn't allowed to be on the staff of the White Hospital. You know, all of those things that I saw growing up, you know, I saw how people treated him. Uh, we knew that he was born on the same plantation where his parents had been slaves and he achieved a lot in his life and so did my parents you know and so did i but when i when i looked at when i started doing the ted talk it brought up all of these memories for me from the past and the reason that was a problem is because i had hidden those memories from myself in order to fit in, you know, I went to a white medical school. I didn't go to a historically black college. You know, I thought I'm just going to keep achieving even more than my parents did who went to historically black colleges. I wanted to do better than that, you know, and throughout all of that, I think a part of who my identity as a black woman was sort of submerged and I was just, you know, I'm just doing my job. I'm just getting out there, you know, taking care of my family. I'm working hard. You know, I don't have to think about being a black woman. And it's really not true because now it's kind of hit me at this stage in my career, which is, you know, I mean, it, I couldn't have done anything before because there was no openness to talk about this. And now there is some openness to talk about it. But also a big part of my career has been lived without that, I you know, without that as being uh, a part of me in a way. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm getting getting that across. But um, so, you know, I have I when I look back, I realize that so many times where I was marginalized because of who I am, um, you know, I was given an opportunity. But uh, then, you know, I was paid less for it. Or I was, I could go and speak at a major conference, but I could only speak about Black people, you know, which my area of trauma, it, you know, my area of expertise is trauma. And uh, I had a hard time getting on the speaking circuit to talk about trauma. But as soon as I started talking about African Americans with eating disorders, then I was very popular. So you see what I'm saying? Yeah. They are little things. You know, they really are, in some ways, little things. But I think over a period of time, they pile up and you start realizing how much you've lost, you know, how much you've gained. But also, there was a cost. Yeah. Uh, So... Thank you
2: for sharing that. I feel like that was very vulnerable. So thank you for that. Um, I think that especially as Black women, it gets lost. The, The work gets lost a little bit. And like seeing someone like you, I am inspired and kind of the idea of, your struggle isn't even in my mind because I'm like wow she's so
1: strong and she's doing <laughs> all of these things and well, but that's I think is- part of it you know because yeah. you're so strong is the strong black woman syndrome exactly you know and that's that's how we had to be mm-hmm. in order to take care of our business you know but there's always the cost to the strong black woman syndrome don't don't fail to recognize that there's a cost
2: Hmm. Yeah, and uh, so because of that, I just I'm really touched that you felt like comfortable to share that you were struggling a little bit. Um. So thank you again for that. Okay. Um. So when I was I was looking for um someone to have on the show to talk about eating disorders, um, but also eating disorders in Black communities, and I found myself unconsciously seeking out white experts when I was thinking about the just eating disorder portion of it, and then seeking out Black experts for the people of color portion of it. Hi guys, I wanted to pop in here really quickly and provide some clarity for what I said, just because I don't want it to be taken out of context or anything. Um, So when I was uh, looking for and reaching out to eating disorder experts, I noticed as I was looking back at all the emails I sent that all the people that I contacted for general eating disorder information were white and all the people I contacted about eating disorders in communities of color were black. Um, And initially I was in the mindset that, you know, these two things, um, just general information about eating disorders and eating disorders as it pertains to people of color. um, I was in the mindset that they had to be separate conversations. Um, But in realizing the trend of all of these white experts that I, you know, came across, um, and came up in my searches, and contacted after I like realized that trend, I thought it was even more important to have a black voice speak on both topics, both general eating disorder information and information about how eating disorders affect people of color. I thought it was important that we have a Black voice speak on both of those topics so we can start normalizing Black voices in the eating disorder community, but also in the mental health community in general. Thank you so much for understanding, and let's get back into the show. And then I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> like, like, why, you, why am do I doing that? Up, girl? <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, I can, that doesn't
1: make any sense when, you but know, that's, there's- that's how you see how the white world operates. Yeah, because that's how they operate, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not surprising mm-hmm. that you would do that because that's kind of how we've been trained.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think, um, something I've been exploring is how there's so much anti-Blackness within the Black community and how we have to go within ourselves to see how, you know, the society that we live in has caused our values, some of them, to be against ourselves. Um,
1: yeah. I, well, that's called internalized racism. Hmm. Yeah. And I was just watching. This is an old, old um, thing on YouTube, where Lewis Farrakhan and also Malcolm X had. Um, they they put Malcolm X on YouTube. <laughs> <It's so> funny, <laughs> YouTube wasn't even invented when Malcolm X died. I know. Was not, you know? But um, they were talking about this same thing. I remember Malcolm X's YouTube video where he was saying. You know, who taught you to hate your black skin? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose? Who taught you to hate, you know, your black body? And that's, that's the way it is because, you know, this, we cannot, we can no longer ignore the legacy of slavery, which was to demonize the black body, and especially for black women, Slavery was the beginning of the creation of the thin ideal, which was in contradistinction to, you know, how white women should be. White women should be chaste. They should be thin. They should be religious, sanctified, etc. cetera. And then they talked about black women's bodies as, um, as savage and sinful and, you know, sexualized and so on. So that's the beginning of the thin ideal. So you're talking about eating disorders. It's this whole thing. It traces directly back to how black bodies were treated in slavery. And, you know, there's still obviously because of the whole uh, situation now, we're still seeing black people, whether they be, I mean, you think about John Lewis and being on the Selma March and you know, all that MLK experience were women and children were beaten and fire hoses were put on them and little children in a church were blown up. And so the beginning really of eating disorders was the creation of the thin ideal. And that thin ideal started back in slavery. So, you know, a lot of black people feel like, why should we go back and talk about something that happened, you know, years and years ago. When you look at, All of the history, we've all been saying the same thing. You go back to uh, Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Louis Farrakhan, Malcolm X, you know, uh, all of the new people who've been, Ibram kindi you know, all of those people, all saying exactly the same thing. They're not saying, you know, they're all saying we just want to be accepted in our own country and to be recognized for what we've done. And in terms of eating disorders, part of that recognition has to be that, you know, we no longer demonize women's, black women's bodies. And we no longer have these stereotypes. Either you're the mammy who took care of the white people's family, or you're the sex pot that you see on the, you know, on some of the music videos. I mean, there's a whole... Right. Or you you're the strong black woman who's overcome everything, but she's a mess, right. you know, right. Right? <laughs> right. So anyway, that's what I was saying.
2: Wow. So this is just such a deep rooted issue. And I'm wondering where do we even begin <laughs> with kind of unlearning the things that have brought us to where we are today? Um, like with the African-American Eating Disorder Professionals Committee, um, like what are the things that you guys are doing to kind of yeah. help situation?
1: Well, we we um, have a page on the IADEP website uh, under AADP-BIPOC. And we do webinars there. We do um you know, we do blogs, um, there's member salutes to tell you what other members are doing. I mean, our focus is really educating eating disorder professionals. And I think within that focus, each of us individually want to educate at the broader world. Like I speak at a lot of national and international conferences, which are now virtual, which is kind of cool. It's, mm-hmm. I can get more done that way. I don't have to fly to New Zealand to speak. I can on Zoom. So, yeah. So I think uh, AADP Bipoc is really about educating and promoting um, diversity within the eating disorder community. In terms of people like yourself who are listening, and you know want to know what they can do. I think the first thing is you know really educating yourself about the history, because. Most of us weren't taught anything about Black history. That's why I find it so interesting to go back and now all this is on YouTube and listen to some of the talks that some of these people have had uh, or have done way, way long time ago. Many of them are now deceased or were assassinated. Um, And listening to them talk about, you know, these issues helps us to stay awake or woke as you guys say (laughs) and just being aware within yourself just like you said you we're going to go to white people talk about eating disorders and go to a black person not black people with eating disorders you have to just stay awake to the fact that we've been swimming in this white racist white supremacist society for all of our lives so there's no way we're not going to have you know picked up some of it, or a lot of it, but we just have to keep being more and more aware. And I think once you start, like I was talking to my sister, and she's always been kind of a moderate black woman. You know, she has African statues in her in her house and African paintings and all that. Um, but, you know, she she was never one to come out and want to talk about slavery or anything like that. But once she she and I started talking, and I was sharing with her what I just shared with you about what happened to me. Because I did my um, TED Talk in Texas where my sister lives. And uh, she couldn't understand why after the TED Talk, I was so, like I was so upset I could hardly, I'm not easily upset, let's put it this way. But she was shocked that I was just so upset. And I wasn't upset that um, I had done the TED Talk. I was upset that the Ted talk had brought up all that stuff for me and I was trying to tell her and she just couldn't get it. It's like, well, you know, that, that happened. It was a long time ago. I mean, you did a great job, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But now the protest happened. She's getting more awake. You know, I'm telling, and now I keep bringing up the Ted talk and I keep bringing up what happened to us as children. She's getting more awake. And now finally, she's starting to find the areas in her own life where she has been discriminated against, you know, treated unfairly, et cetera. And she blamed herself. And that's the number one thing that black women do blame yourself for something, someone else like she got fired. Oh, it must be her fault. You know, it's not that, you know, they were discriminating. So I think it's just a process of, you know, you have to go back, there's a term in, um, I think it's from Ghana, but I may don't hold me to that. It's called Sankofa. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that term?
2: Yes, I heard it last night. At your- oh, on my
1: TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so Sankofa is all about um, you have to uh, go back and bring your past with you. If you leave it behind, you're not going to be fully who you are. So even though the past may be painful and it's hard to look at, whether it's your individual past or our race's past, we need to understand what happened back there in order to be informed today. That's (laughs) Sankofa, (laughs) baby.
2: Okay. So now going back to like eating disorders. So if someone's listening that, is struggling with their eating um, or knows someone, what are some resources that you would recommend?
1: Yeah, I think um, certainly there's the, uh, there's NEDA, the National Eating Disorder Association. Um, there's, um, what else? I think if you're struggling with an eating disorder, getting in touch with somebody at NIDA or even, you know, at our organization, IDAP, uh can help you find the resources that you need. Um,
2: And then this is just a follow-up question. Um, With NIDA, do you find that that organization
1: is culturally sensitive? Well, according to uh, Instagram, they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so maybe you should just contact uh, AAEDP through, through, (laughs) I don't know. Okay. you know, there aren't a lot of resources right now, particularly for, um, you know, people of color. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, our organization, just our subcommittee, we have therapists, doctors, psychiatrists, dietitians from all over the country, and we're growing. So, you know, certainly there are some opportunities to, um, you know, help people to our committee.
2: Okay. Great. And then lastly, how can myself and my listeners stay up to date with you and the work that you're doing?
1: Well, I have a podcast, the Carolyn Coker Ross Show. So that's one way you can, it's on all of the, you know, Spotify, Apple, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, my website is my name, CarolynRossMD.com. If anybody's interested in working with me on binge eating disorder or emotional eating or food addiction, my program is, my online program is called the anchor program. So it's website is anchorprogram.com. So those are the best ways. And you can contact me directly through my websites. Uh, so either anchor program or through Carolyn Ross, md.com, um, yeah. And I do offer free consults if you want to, you know, if you were struggling and you want some help in finding resources or uh, you can sign up for a free consult through my program.
2: All right. Thank you. You're
1: um, welcome, Jay. Yeah, it's thank you awesome. for being here. It's, to to
2: it's been great to talk to you, too. I, I was so excited when I saw that you were a medical doctor and you were also an expert in eating disorders. Just because I'm not even used to that, yeah. (laughs) It's it was really great talking to you, and I feel like I'm probably gonna reach out to you again so we can talk about trauma.
1: (laughs) Sure, I would love to. Okay, Okay. all right, great. Thanks for inviting me, and feel free to contact me to come back anytime.
2: For listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I am really excited about this episode. I have wanted to make something like this ever since I started my eating disorder treatment, um, mainly because I had a lot of family members who just didn't understand the disorder, and I wanted to help educate them because, um, you know, having an environment where the people around you are educated about what you're struggling with just makes the struggle a little bit easier. Um, So I'm glad that I'm finally able to put out something to help with educating people um, about this issue. Um, And there's gonna be probably several more episodes um, about eating disorders because there's a lot that goes into them so stay tuned for those i want to thank dr ross again for being on the episode it was really lovely talking to her i learned a lot so make sure to look at the description so you can see how you can contact dr ross utilize Mm -hmm. her resources or online classes and also any other resources that were mentioned in the episode Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, share the episode, and leave a review for the podcast. Otherwise, I will see you next time.
0: by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have an online course or an event or a book you'd like to promote? We've got the right audience for you. Our listeners love content like the show you just heard. You can reach our engaged audiences by advertising right here on mindbodyspirit.fm, the podcast network in shows about wellness, self-care, spirituality, angels, and more. Contact info at mindbodyspirit.fm.